Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CS176, Revolution, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 286, March the 3rd, 1993. Tonight, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I will be discussing the subject of revolution. We often uh, hear it said that uh, revolutions mark the modern, modern age, but that is not entirely accurate. Certainly, the modern age has been a revolutionary one, and the uh, bedmate of revolution has been romanticism, as more than one scholar has pointed out. However, Shafarovich, in his uh, essay in From Under the Rubble, edited by Solzhenitsyn, and in his own book on socialism, called attention to the Persian revolution of the Mazdakites. He's the only scholar I know who has related that to the subject of revolution. It's a subject I'm very familiar with because An ancestor after whom my grandson, Mark's son, Isaac, is named, was one of the first victims of the Mazdakites. The Mazdakites advocated total revolution. They wanted total equality. They wanted also the communization of all land, of all money, of all wealth in every form, and of all women. This theme has been an undercurrent in Western revolutions. The anarchists in Russia in 1917 and 18 made like demands. But basic to the Mazdakite movement, even more than this equalitarian or communizing tendency was hatred. The hatred of all excellence the hatred of anyone who was more successful, the hatred of anyone who had succeeded when you failed. And this was made into a political faith and a religion because it was a total perspective. And of course, revolution ever since then has seen itself as a, a totalitarian faith. 
it means to affect everything across the board to alter the total life of man from religion to his eating and drinking his every habit and in every age it has been murderous to the nth degree the Persians although they overthrew the Mazdakites never fully recovered from that and were overcome by the Seljuk Turks every group affected by a revolution has suffered a decline for a time or for a protracted time as a result of it how long the Russians will take to overcome the revolution or any of the peoples whom they conquered we don't know certainly the indications at present in Central Europe are not favorable to a quick turnaround nor are they in the Soviet Union or any of its constituent members Solzhenitsyn has said that <clears throat> one of the problems in Russia today is that the peasant has disappeared he was destroyed and those who are on, on the land today have no relationship to the peasants of old and the land he says is the backbone of a nation you cannot neglect the land without destroying a country so he sees a bleak future well with that Douglas would you like to continue seems to me that the driving force behind revolutions is sin uh, you know when somebody's got something that you want it boils down to covetousness and envy and that seems to be the driving force behind socialism that yes. they just can't stand any differential whatsoever as long as it's up yeah. you know, they like what's down yeah. they but, like what's inferior but this has been the fact that it's repetitive that revolution has been repetitive since the very beginnings Mm -hmm. uh, indicates that it's sin based because we keep falling into the same pit time after time after time well it's from the bottom in terms of emotion and from the top in terms of approach I think one of the most horrifying of modern examples is the Sanderoso Luminoso Sandero Luminoso in Peru they've gone through like a flame and they've murdered men, women and children they're killing everything they finally caught the leader and they have him in a cage and they have the cage in a very large cage and all four walls are lined with soldiers shoulder to shoulder to keep him in that cage uh, students at one university have appealed for his release students in this country because he is a great philosophical figure and political scientist well 
they're very lucky that I'm not dictator of the United States, <laughs> because I would send them down immediately to join him in his cage. Immediately. Every one of them. We don't need students like that. We don't need people like that. Yeah. But that's the, that's the, uh, there's no philosophy. It's, it's, you put it terribly well when you said hatred. It's hatred of excellence. It's hatred of superiority. It's hatred of any obstacle between the individual and total power. And the Soviet system turned out, I don't think they planned it in every specific, but it turned out to be very interesting. Everyone who allied themselves with the Communist Party in the Soviet Union got a little piece of the action. All the way down, from Stalin down, and although he swept time and again, he swept the ranks clean and started all over. I mean, he he had a whole bunch of secret police, the Cheka in the beginning, and he killed them, and then he had another bunch and he killed them and so forth because he was insatiable. His only thought was to kill you. His only, it was in the end, his only pleasure was to kill you and to make you aware of the fact that he could kill you at any minute. So there was, and he hated, he was a little man, five foot three. And isn't it interesting that in all the observers and all the interviews and all the photographs and all the films and everything else, they've never made that clear? He always stood on something to he be He stood higher. on something, and he was photographed from below. Sitting yeah, down. Sitting down, yeah. yes. Revolution uh, was a very favorite word in this country. Mm-hmm. It still is. Mm-hmm. Only now they, they don't call it that anymore. It's now it's environmental. Have you yes. noticed that in the last two administrations that they've alluded to the fact that they've created a, gen- uh, a revolution? Clinton's crowd is claiming a revolution and uh, Bush's crowd claimed that they had created a revolution. Mr. Bush, Mr. Shrub. Mark? Well, you've mentioned the fact that the revolution is based on envy and hatred. It also necessitates destruction because you can't have a revolution unless you destroy what you want to change so that the only alternative is what you are offering. So it has to, by necessity, be destructive. We mentioned envy earlier. I think it's important to understand the roots of revolution. A very fine pastor I know, an excellent man, military training, versatile in his talents, was asked by a church to become their pastor. He was told that uh, they needed a building, they had a growing congregation, but they needed someone who could take charge of the construction. This was one reason why they chose this man, because he had some experience as a carpenter contractor. 
So he went there to be paid a pittance. His wife taught school and he uh, took charge of the construction of a sanctuary. Then he waited for them to give him the promised pay. They did nothing. So he finally told them at a meeting of the board what he expected and said, this is what I want. I've worked for you. I've been here for two or more years. Had no pay. Just um, expenses. Now, this is what I expect to be paid. This is what you can pay. There was a long, heated discussion back and forth in the board. And about one o'clock in the morning, one of the members broke out angrily and said, If we pay the pastor that much, you'll be making more than I am. Now, the man no doubt thought of himself as a good Christian, but he belonged in hell. Because out of that type of temperament are revolutions made. And that kind of temperament is very prevalent. I know that one man told me once that someone in his organization confronted him angrily and said, What makes you think you're better than I am? And the man said, And what makes you think I'm not? But people today are resentful of superiority. They always are. Yes. But uh, as more than one scholar has pointed out, only Christianity has been able to temper that and make progress possible. And when the church is weak and wimpish, this prevails again. And whether it's men or women or children, superiority creates envy and resentment. Well, of course, they're not taught, as they should be as children, that to feel envy is to have an inferior reaction. Yes. That it marks you as mm -hmm. inferior if you allow yourself to be envious. Mm -hmm. That you will lose everything you've got if you give way to sensations of that sort. But if you're raised without any knowledge of honor, any knowledge of justice, any knowledge of how to behave yourself, you have no self-respect. Mm -hmm. Well, kids are being taught this in the public schools. I know, today. they're taught that they have a right to be envious. Yeah. And they therefore have no self-respect. I saw a bumper sticker on a car today that says, when all else fails, cheat. And that's a prevailing attitude among kids and uh, yes. a lot of kids today. Well, we have a politics of envy today, which is really the politics of revolution, because that's what it leads to. And this is how politicians regularly campaign. 
by appealing to the envious in men. Yes, we're going to, the rich are going to pay their fair share. Yes. As if there was any way that the rich didn't pay a fair share when they have a progressive tax system. And how many clergymen are ready to get up and say to their congregations, God makes it clear in his law that the tax is to be same that, uh, for all, without exception. Ten percent. And that justice means you do not favor the poor because they are poor or the rich because they are rich. No respect of persons. We've abandoned that. Well, the whole system. Uh, honor is a word that I haven't heard for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so insults are not recognized in our court. You can no longer take a man to court for insulting you. The court would throw you out. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you're a favored minority. Then it becomes a hate crime. Then it becomes a hate crime. Yes. But, of course, that's something else. What we're talking about here is uh, revolution. Revolution is, as far as I can see, is, is the desire to have power over others. Mm -hmm break it down to its final analysis. And I remember on a troop ship seeing a, an officer coming down a ladder and at the same time an enlisted man was going up the same ladder. And this officer put his hand in that fellow's face and pushed him backward, rung bar, rung all the way down. And I thought, fellow, you'll be lucky if you live through your next battle. Mm -hmm. because he would be shot a fellow like that well you mentioned desire to have power over others some years ago I read two or three monographs about Africa intensely interesting um, one by a scientist called attention to African inventiveness. Long before we had anything comparable in the Western world, the Africans had sedan uh, chairs for chiefs so that they could go up a mountainside and never tilt the sedan chair. It would always adjust so it would be always level. And uh, automobile manufacturers have uh, developed a comparable thing in modern times. But the Africans have had it for a long time. But only for the chiefs. And the scientists said, this is what held Africa back. Because the essence of everything was power over others. And a thing was good because only you had it. Others didn't. That was one of the principles in the Soviet Union. Yes. It wasn't that the members of the party did so well. They had special stores and they had big houses and they had servants. But in effect, they didn't live any better than the rich anywhere else. The great pleasure was the fact that nobody else had it. 
Mm-hmm. And this is expressed, you hear that, I used to hear it expressed, I don't have been around those circles for years, anger at seeing somebody go by in a big shiny automobile, a black guy driving a big Cadillac, and I used to think, what the hell is it to you? Mm-hmm. But it would annoy some. Mm-hmm. just as any other possession seems to annoy certain people. Now, you don't get any larger in your shoes if the other guy goes down. Mm-hmm. You don't get any taller. It's kind of a perverted sense of envy to gain power by depriving others. Exactly. And the revolutionary promise is always that they want power in order to do good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a staple. This is for your own good. Yes. But the power to do good has been used in this country to, until it's pretty fragile. I heard on Crossfire the other day an anti-smoking fellow talking about $2 a pack would be all right for cigarettes to protect the teenagers so that they wouldn't be enticed into smoking and they wouldn't be able to afford to buy cigarettes. And I thought, have you seen our teenagers that you want to protect? (laughs) (laughs) That's a classic line. (laughs) They're not exactly a national asset. Not those we see. The more expensive it is, the more desirable it is. Yeah, I wonder if some of these public school educators who, uh, you know, want more money uh, and say that, uh, you know, kids today are the future of this country, and I say, think to myself, oh boy, <laughs> with the orange hair and the purple hair and hard times coming, the uh, the four-letter words emblazoned on their t-shirts and jackets and saving from cigarettes. Yeah. Strange that some teachers haven't got the message and they want protection from the teenagers. Mm -hmm. They don't see that the teenagers need protection. A real rebel today, if he's a teenager, is (laughs) well-dressed, is wearing a tie, (laughs) and is totally different. And this is where the rebels are going to come from. If there's ever another second revolution in the United States, it'll come from the Orthodox. Well, that's, that's an interesting point you raised about wearing a tie and all. Two, three times in recent months, I've been on flights, well-filled flights, and I've been the only one with a coat and tie. <laughs> and the only time when I do see uh, a lot of people with coats and ties is... <laughs> It's on flights to Washington, D.C. People going there to try to get something. Mm-hmm. Well, the lawyers in the courtroom are very well dressed. Yes. They're not wearing dungarees and sweatshirts because they know they're not going to sway the jury. Unless they're women. Douglas, you can tell us about one woman lawyer. <laughs> oh, yeah, she was a peach. She wore... Uh, these long uh, red leather boots in the court and chartreuse, a long baggy chartreuse uh, 
jacket and uh, I don't know where she got the clothes but uh, she thought this was very arty and uh, the, the, she found out over time that the juries up here that were predominantly uh, people in their 50s and 60s and uh, they took one look at her and she was losing case after case and I see she just closed up her law offices downtown and uh, it didn't fly didn't fly and it's, it's not flying uh, in business firms they wear suits and they wear ties and uh, they're shaving more mm -hmm. the um, the revolutionaries usually come from the class the professional class that has not achieved the people that are educated beyond their capacity you might say in society who feel that by virtue of their education society owes them a high position and they don't have the ability to attain that high position through uh, through merit and through accomplishment they don't want to wait again they they're very impatient. Yes, uh, colonial powers, as well as missionaries, did a great deal of harm in uh, sending a lot of uh, peoples from Asia and Africa to England or to the States for university training. And when they went back they found the kind of life they'd lived intolerable uh, the missionaries could go on using an outhouse but they had to have all the modern conveniences they had seen at Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard or elsewhere and they felt that the colonial power should give them positions commensurate with their self-importance and these were the people who became the revolutionaries well it's interesting that in India having educated these fellows at Oxbridge uh, they went back and they began to agitate in India most of the people of India never saw an Englishman mm -hmm. there were so few yes. that they never came in contact with them uh, but the people of England accepted the arguments of that small Indian elite that went to the university as the voice of India. Yes. Now look at India. India is regressing back into the internecine racial and religious and ethnic hatreds that has marked its culture all through the centuries. Yes, and some are predicting that in... Uh not too many years it will disintegrate into hundreds of uh, states it'll have to because they cannot live together in one state no. well they've proven themselves ungovernable yes they can't govern themselves and that's true of some other artificial uh, countries that have been created in this century yes they are going to disintegrate in the next generation or so if not sooner but they will and uh, the 
idea that somehow the United Nations is going to prevent it and we'll have a one world order is the height of insanity. Has anybody looked at the uh, enclaves of the United Nations or listened to them? They took them off the air after the Six-Day War because there were objections to some of the speeches. And they have never put it back on again because it's a cacophony of every bigoted point of view conceivable. Earlier, Mark mentioned something that marked revolution, the love of destruction. And I think that is very, very important and needs to be uh, considered for a while. I was startled a few years ago to learn that uh, demolition parties are becoming popular in certain areas among well-to-do people that uh, if a building is to be demolished, the uh, partygoers will go there with uh, sledgehammers and uh, every kind of instrument imaginable, and with shrieks of delight, men and women will proceed to demolish things. Uh, Is that a sign of frustration? I don't know, but it's not a sign of anything good. There's an awful lot of suppressed violence in this country. There's an awful lot of frustrated people. There's a lot of anger, which uh, you can see in any highway. And I think these drive-by shootings on the highway are part of this. Just uh, unfocused anger. Well, speaking of frustration and anger. Maybe you remember the story which goes back to the 20s that used to be told about how if a general's wife blew up at breakfast and berated him for not having done something, he went and uh, to uh, his job seething and took it out on his aides who took it out on the officers beneath them and it wound up by going down to the lieutenants who took it out on the sergeants who took it out on the privates and the privates took it out on the army mules mm-hmm. there was a bit of homely truth in that and I think uh, an era where people are not at peace with God and therefore not at peace with themselves and with one another, they are going to have a love of destruction. We uh, have an unprecedented amount of destruction around schools, not only on the premises, but in some of the cities, whereas not too many years ago, into the 50s, when a realtor was trying to sell a house, one of the advantages that would be pointed out was, you're close to a school. Now that's no longer an advantage, because there is so much vandalism to properties close to a school. So the love of destruction is among children. And... uh, 
One of the things that used to be commonplace when you and I were young, Otto, was the number of toys that uh, were handed down. Now, <laughs> they don't last. No. Partly because of their construction, but partly also because of the destructiveness of children. Well, they're not stopped. No. The destructiveness is not checked. Uh, the I think we talked about it at breakfast. The two ten-year-olds that killed a two-year-old in Britain, mm-hmm. and the, the editorial in the Spectator was that bring back caning. Yes. Because the caning was the way of teaching them right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Now you can't punish. You're not supposed to punish. Punishment, they say, is only vindictiveness and has no purpose. Well, punishment is a corrective. It's not only a corrective, but it teaches. You don't do it again. You got hurt. Well, that's the product of the head shrinkers, Tom. The well, school of course, authorities how to run the railroad, and that's where they got into trouble. Of course, this country swallowed without a gulp. Mm-hmm. The most fantastic quackery from most people that is conceivable. Otto, uh, it may have been in the same issue of the English Spectator or the following one, but uh, the one article spoke about bringing back caning, and the other said, bring back the devil. Same thing. Yes, bring back a knowledge that there is evil. That's what the Russians learned. They learned God through the devil. Yes. And it was startling coming from a rather liberal periodical that has sometimes been horrifying in what it contains. Well, it's very free, but there is a moral streak that runs through it. Mm -hmm. They haven't abandoned uh, the sense of justice. And also, they're a great deal more outspoken than we are. They have not been able to shut the English up although there are efforts being made in that direction to be politically correct. They do have hate crimes over there. They have put men in jail for giving a speech listing what some of the Jamaicans have done. And their defense was that it was the truth. And they said, if the truth creates racial dissension, it violates the law and put them in prison. I don't think that's just. So they're crumbling at the edges. Mm-hmm. We've reached that point. Without stating it, they have at least had the honesty to state it. But we are at the point where if you tell the truth about the American society today, you are committing a major offense. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this is a pre-revolutionary situation. Yes. I've, talked to, I've written books on this. I've not written books on revolution per se because they don't interest me, but I've written books on the period before revolution, on the conditions that lead to rev- that that wind up in revolution, the abolitionist movement, mm-hmm. the period under James the first before the revolution under under his son Charles the first, and the period under Robespierre before really well that really got into the terror. I could say that we have all the conditions for revolution here today. Yes. 
that have occurred in other countries at other times. The Weimar Republic is the closest parallel that we have. Germany in the 20s. They had everything. They had the pro-abortionists. They had the rise of the homosexuals and the lesbians. They had a psychiatry governing the uh, treatment of the criminal in the court. They had everything that we have. They had a, a deficit financing system, an uncertain economy. They had racial dissension and political dissension. They had unpopular minority. Blue movies. It was the home of pornography. Yeah. It was the world capital of the pornographic film. Mm. When I was a boy, and, and we were in Rio, that the soft porn movies all came from Germany, and I used to wonder, what sort of people are the Germans? Now the world capital is Los Angeles. I'm beginning to think that this... This uh, repeated stupidity is some kind of a disease that keeps coming back like smallpox. You know, well, you whip it for a while, and then it, you think it's gone, and it comes back. One of the reasons that we're repeating the errors of the Weimar Republic is that we refuse, we refuse to admit them. They have never been analyzed, yes. or they have never been admitted. The fate of the victims has overshadowed the events that led to the victimization. And we lionize those who are a part of it, like Marlene Dietrich. Well, there was Billy Wilder, who made movies six months of the year in Los Angeles and six months of the year in Berlin, and was making movies just a few years ago here. Some like it hot, transvestism. Mm -hmm. never, he never straightened up. Well, we have a growing revolutionary movement the world over that is threatening every society. The only effective protest against it thus far is the Islamic fundamentalism, which is, unhappily, the wrong religion and a sterile movement. True. But what we're talking about is a civilizational regression. Yes. Germany was only Germany. France was only France. But we are the leader of the West. The largest, the richest, everybody uh, imitates us. When Spain was leading the West, everybody wore their, those dark clothes and the rough and imitated the Spanish formality and everything else. The leading country always sets the cultural tone. Look at the cultural tone we're setting. The worst of our culture is being exported via the film, the radio, and so forth, and the press. We really have a terrible press. And yet, there is more uh, in intellect, and there's more knowledge here than anywhere else. Somebody was talking to me about Clinton and his ridiculousness, his, his imitation plan. It's this plan which Perot says he's trying to sell us an automobile by the parts only. We would rather buy a whole car. Uh, and I said, yes, it's true, but never before have we had so many who knew better. 
when Roosevelt was peddling his nonsense, we weren't as well informed as we are today. We didn't know as much. Now there's a great many very well informed people in this country. And I think uh, there's enough to overcome Mr. Clinton. Well, I think we'll know a great deal more about what's going to happen by the end of the 90s if it hasn't happened. Well, we'll be... Let's hope we get through the 90s. Yes. Well, most of our listeners will, but... Well, I'm not sure that we will. Yes. Given our age, I'd like to stick around and see how the story comes out, but (laughs) that's in God's hands. It's certainly a dramatic story. There's no way of doing what some people do, turning to the last page of the book (laughs) to see how it comes out. Of course, the Bible tells you how it will, but I want the details. (laughs) The devil is in the details, is what Thoreau said. (laughs) Well, revolution today is eroding the whole of the civilized world because uh, it is pursuing the course that uh, oh the great Frenchman who wrote on America de Tocqueville who said that the doctrine of equality would triumph over every other idea and destroy civilization. And at present, um, Count Eric von Kunelt-Ledin is revising his book of about 50 years ago or 40 to 50 years ago on equality. He plans to bring it up to date and to develop that same thesis more fully that equalitarianism will destroy everything before it every culture every kind of art every kind of science every kind of superiority it will level all things with a mass destruction if it is not arrested well when a fellow says I'm as good as you are he's really admitting that he isn't Mm -hmm. Nobody else would ever think of saying a thing like this. And if you make that idea better known, mm-hmm. you do a lot to stop a lot of nonsense. Yes. Well, Adine is, of course, a superior man of the kind that is not as common today in his uncompromising adherence to Christendom. Dorothy and I have known him for some years and he uh, called and we chatted for an hour when he was last in San Francisco. But he represents a character that is not common. Here he is, uh, I believe, 84. He lectured uh, this past year at the University of Yemen 
And when he called me, he had just been working on his Arabic because he plans to be able to converse with them freely in Arabic when he goes back. The lectures will be in English. That's part of the stipulation, apparently. But at 84, to think of mastering as difficult a language as Arabic, that's marvelous. And it isn't common. I was able, until my father was no longer able to read because of his glaucoma, to pass on very serious books to him. And he was eager to read them. That intellectual openness and eagerness, curiosity, is now going with a drive to equality. Well, I don't feel quite that bad. Uh, I keep finding some awfully good works that are appearing. I don't think the world is going to die with us, Rush. I think that it'll be... No, I believe it's going to have a revival. But in the process, it's killing a great many things. Well, there's a lot of things coming up also. Some of the things that uh, that you yourself like very much, the expanding homeschool movement and all other kinds of things. The very fact that Chalcedon is here at the end of 25 years with more influence than it had 25 years ago goes against what you just said. True. I think out of desperation, more and more will turn to us. I'm happy to report that... Uh, The European states in a Congress will hear on the pri uh, lecture on the privatization of welfare from one of our number that uh, yesterday um, a member of a state legislature called with a similar request because out of desperation, that legislature and a liberal committee head are ready to find some solution because welfareism is destroying the monetary foundation of a modern state. So they are out of desperation, beginning to show a willingness to consider some other alternatives. And the crisis will bring new solutions also. Yes. Yes. You know, when when the horse doesn't run anymore, <laughs> uh, then something has to be done. Douglas, did you want to say something? Well, I, you know, uh, I keep going back to the same thing that uh, there are an awful lot of frustrated people out there, and they want practical, you know, a practical way to go. Uh, you know, you back them into a corner with all this doom and gloom, and everybody's you know ready to jump off a cliff. Uh, what can we offer people uh, in the way of a practical solution for the individual uh, to keep from uh, uh, becoming desperate? That's a very important point because you're so right. There are a lot of people out there of amazing talent if we could uh, start a college tomorrow, I could bring in brilliant men 
who are unable to find a place or are put down in some kind of uh, teaching position where they're not teaching what they can teach. Just have some leftover classes that nobody else wants. If the money were available, a great deal could be done to give a voice to many, many remarkable men. But of course, the money is not there. I'm going downhill because I've got more work than I can cope with. We need a full-time administrator. And I can't get to the writing I'd like to do because I'm doing so much with the telephone and with letters and uh, all kinds of details, dealing with the accountants and odds and ends. And I think that goes back to the Christian community. They're going to get what they pay for. And they're going to get hell if they're not going to pay for something better. Mark, would you like to add something? Okay. Otto? Well, are we still on revolution? Yes. It's interesting that in the end, of course, it brings a great craving for order. And I think there's a great craving for order in this country today. Underneath the surface, everyone that I know is really sick and tired of the unsafe streets, the uncertain future that we confront, the fact that you have to pick up the paper and look into it to find out what a dollar is worth. It changes from day to day. If you don't have a a stable unit of currency, it's impossible to have a stable economy. You don't have to be Albert Einstein to figure that out. We cannot live on this paper money forever. We cannot live by this nonsense that's emanating now from Congress and the White House forever. I think Perot put it very well when he said, if this man is going to add 30 million people to the health rolls, and reduce the cost of health overall, he's really remarkable. And I read in the paper where he said what we're watching now is a steep learning curve on the part of certain PhDs who have never held a job or created one. Well, you know what Clinton plans to do after he accomplishes those things? Walk on water. He's going to square the circle, I thought. Walk on water. He'll invent a perpetual motion machine when it comes to speeches because he's speaking around the clock. But So the ingredients for reform are at hand. Yes. And a certain amount of candor about our national situation would go a long way toward clarifying it and opening up the path. I mean, Howie Phillips... Uh, keeps talking to people across the country. He's apparently on the road 24 hours a day. He's a taxpayer's party. Has, he has not lost his uh, enthusiasm or his energy. He's 50 years old. 
He said he's going he's a young man. He's a young man and he's going to continue this for the rest of his life. Well, that's going to be a major blessing to the country. And he has behind him all sorts of Christian support. Yes. And he needs more because he's taken the Christian position. And I think uh, the idea in the first place of, the, of his party was that an intellectual alternative to this nonsense would be set up in place for the people to have an alternative to turn to when the crunch comes. I think it's going to come. And uh, I see no reason in the world why he will, he will not get that following. Because I recall, and so do you, the days of the 30s Depression when all kinds of figures rose up that we hadn't heard of before and all kinds of multitudes turned to them. You remember Upton Sinclair in California? Dewey mm -hmm. Long, every man a king. Mm -hmm. Father Coughlin in Michigan, some little church in Michigan. Royal Oak, yes. Yes. Mr. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt wasn't the only voice. And Lemke. Lemke from, from, from uh, North Dakota, yes. wasn't it? Yes, yes, I believe so. Uh, they pop up all over the horizon, and uh, I look back at some of them had very simple solutions. I mean, Upton Sinclair and this every uh, $200 a week for all the seniors was going to take care of our money problems. That was Townsend. Oh, Townsend, yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Townsend. Dr. Townsend. Well, we got... Townsend's plan. Yes, we did. Roosevelt stole it, and its That's name right. is Social Security. That's right. So there's some rather interesting things coming up. In fact, revolutionary things. Well, it's ironic, and it tells us what's happened with all these schemes of Roosevelt and others that uh, Townsend was going to make all the elderly and the retired rich with 200 a month. Yes. 200 a month today <laughs> is another thing. Well, it's 200. Well, now it's dinner for two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, our time is about up, so thank you all for listening and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules. Dot com.